Hi, I'm Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL and founder of The Crate Club, the number one tactical and survival gear subscription box in America, curated by former Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and Special Forces professionals. I know being prepared matters, so if you're looking for a great gift, choose Crate Club. Also, from now until the end of the year, for every annual crate plan you buy, we will donate a crate to a U.S. active duty service member. So help us support the military community and give the gift of Crate Club today at CrateClub.com. That's C-R-A-T-E Club.com. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. For the first time, a guy we've wanted to have on for a while. Hopefully, we'll get him in studio soon. But I know you're always all over the place, man. Uh, CJ Ramon, <laughs> most known as being the basis for the Ramones from 1989 to 1996, but now uh, does his own solo work. Uh, former Marine as well, which is kind of how we connected with him. Of course, also just mutual friend of Andrew Wilkow's. And saw you're about to tour the UK, so it's uh, it's great to finally have you on, man. Yeah, you, you you caught me at a good time. We just finished up uh, five weeks in uh, in Europe, and then come we, right. Literally, we landed at JFK. Uh, one of our crew guys showed up at the airport with our van packed with gear. We got right in the van at JFK and started two weeks through the states with a great band called the Aquabats, and finished that up about a week and a half ago. And now we're taking off on the twenty third for the UK. So I'm right in between. Weren't you also? I saw because you and I follow each other on social media. But you were up at you were up at your dad's, and then you got the phone call, and had to literally <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pack we, up and on go. those on those East Coast dates. We had a day off between Boston and Montreal, so I said to the guys, I said, "Hey, let's let's stop and see my uh, my old man. He, he lives up in Maine." Um, retired up there about 10 years ago. My mom fell and broke a hip recently, so my my old man's just been hanging around the house on his own. And um, he lives in a beautiful spot right on a lake, right on uh, Lake Moranica. And um, so we we stopped up there to see him. And uh, it turned out the other band had nothing to do that day. So we threw a big barbecue at his house. Alcohol was flowing. We went down by the beach there at the lake. We had a good time and um, got up the next morning to leave. I said to said to my old man, I said, hey, why don't you jump in the van and come with us? So he came out with us for the uh, <laughs> last awesome. couple of shows. We, we drove back to New York afterwards. He spent a week here. I drove him home. Yeah, it's seven hours to his place, eight hours. Just as we walked in the door, I got a friend a call from a friend of mine in um, Panama who's a promoter over there. He he does a, organizes a festival for Budweiser every year. And uh, he called me up and said, hey, our headliner dropped out for the festival. 
the show is tomorrow. Do you think you can get on a plane and, and make it to Panama? And um, I said to him, yeah, sure. What the heck? So I got back <laughs> in the car, drove the seven, eight hours back to New York, got home, packed my bag, threw my bag on my base in the car, drove over to Newark airport, jumped on a plane, flew to Panama, got off the plane, had dinner, had a couple of mojitos, got on stage, played the show, came off stage, packed my bag up, went back to the airport, got on a plane and flew home. So it was pretty wild two days there. Oh, man, Panama is still on my list. I want to, I want to get down. I've been to Colombia, but I'd love to, uh, to get down to Panama and just see more of South America in general. Oh, yeah, it's, it's really, I tell you what, it's uh, in Latin America, Panama City is probably the most beautiful city. It's unbelievably yeah. gorgeous, real modern, you know, not hard to find good food. It's easy to get around. It's, it's a really nice place. I'm sure the ladies are smoke, smoke show, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hon, if you're listening, I apologize. But yeah, it's, it's pretty, they ain't lacking in good looking girls either. Yeah, both of you guys got in on on Cuba pretty early too. I, I know that you visited just probably a few months before Brandon did. Yeah, we uh, September. I think that was 2015. We got in there. We got contact. You know, uh, Cuba gets a lot of their music through um, South America. So the Ramones are huge down in South America. So uh, the uh, the head of the cultural department over there happened to be a, a Ramones fan. And he reached out through a, um, a mutual friend in uh, Argentina. And they said, Hey, you know, we, we can offer you a cultural exchange. We'll get you set up with a, you know, hotel room and a van and, and somebody to show you around the city. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> we set up a couple of shows for you. So um, I've been, I had been trying to get to Cuba, trying to figure out a, legal way of doing it and, and was having no luck. <clears throat> so, uh, it was, uh, I was pretty excited. I'm a huge Hemingway fan. I grew up, read everything by Hemingway from when I was pretty young. So I always had a bit of a fascination with the place. <clears throat> so, um, we, uh, we actually did a, a fundraising, you know, a, a crowdfunding campaign online to, uh, to raise the money for the flights and, and all the costs of, getting our gear there and everything. And uh, it worked out pretty good. So we, we got to get over there and uh, do a couple of shows. It's pretty neat. Pretty neat. You know, it's funny too, because I've, I've been to Cuba and I've been to uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg. And I was talking with my kids one night and, and it got to be a little bit of a joke. I said, you know, back in the 80s, the only way I would have seen uh Havana or Moscow would have been at fixed bayonets, you know, that would have been the only way I would have knocked on those doors. But I said, you know, in my lifetime, it's pretty cool that it went from that to me being able to, to go over there and play music for people. So that's pretty, pretty, uh, that's pretty neat. Did you get to the Hemingway house? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course I did. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I did the same thing. We, um, pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. I, and I've been to the one in uh, Key West too. Yeah, I have. Uh, I've been to that one as well. Uh, I'm a Hemingway yeah. fan, also. All right, all right. So, yeah. hey, what's I want to ask? What's the craziest show you've ever played, or craziest experience you had on tour? 
We did, you know, the last Ramon show was a pretty wild one. We played in, um, we played in LA at the palace. Yeah. Um, and, uh, during that show, um, you know, like we had the guys from Rancid came up on stage and played with us. We had Lemmy from Motorhead came up and played with us. The guys from Soundgarden jumped up and played with us. We had like a whole, whole list of like all the biggest artists from the nineties, you know? And that was probably like the, as far as star quality goes, that was probably the wildest event I've done, but we did, we did other great stuff too. We, we played with U2 for two shows in Spain. We, um, we did, uh, like we, in, um, in South America, we did our last show. There was a soccer stadium, 45 or 50,000 people, something oh, like sick. that. So, but yeah, I've, I've seen some big, bad shows, man. Some really, really high end stuff. But, you know, to me, the, the, the ones I always liked the best were the ones where we played in smaller places where the crowds were just insane. And, <laughs> you know, it was the, the energy level in the room is just unbelievable. It's kind of neat at those big shows you look at, there's people as far as you can see. It's impressive, you know. But there's nothing like being in a small room where you can smell the alcohol on people's breath. They're right in front of you. The, the energy in the room is just unbelievable. It's really, it really gives you a charge. It really gets you motivated. That's cool. I was, I don't know um, if you've ever played with, with uh, no effects, but I, I got into just an epic argument. My friend John and John Bush, who's been on the show before he, he was a photographer for Rolling Stone and was a bartender in East Village and started a bunch of bars and restaurants. Now he's he's got his uh, like empire going, but but he is right. close friends <laughs> with with Fat Mike and man, yeah, he was <laughs> he found out I was former military and he's like, who'd you vote for in the election? In the election, oh. I bet you voted for <laughs> Trump. You're such a fucking asshole. And I was like, time out, dude. Like. I just met you and you're a fucking yeah. asshole. We just got into it. And then he eventually apologized to me, but, uh, he, I had the same conversation with him, brother. He called me up and, and, uh, I, I had taken my son to, um, to the Trump inauguration. Yep. And, uh, and, uh, a picture of it went up online and I got a phone call from him and he's like, you, did you vote for Trump? And blah, blah. And I told him, I said, cause I did not, I said, I did not vote for Trump. I didn't tell him that I, I hand wrote in Jim Mattis either. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't vote for Trump. He's not my guy, but he was like, well, you know, there's pictures of you up on there. He's like, you know, at, at my label, we don't, you know, we don't, we don't want that. We don't want to see that kind of stuff going up. And I was like, Hey, I get it. It's your label. I said, but you're, you're barking at the wrong guy. Well, I didn't vote for him, but um, <laughs> yeah, he is, he is hardcore anti-Trump, hardcore anti-Trump. Yeah. But you know, the, the, the thing is the punk rock scene in general, it mostly comes from that side of the fence. It's, you know, in general, yeah. it's mostly like very, very left leaning, but you know, for, for, uh, over here on the East coast, especially in New York, it really wasn't about politics and stuff like that. It was about people who did things their own way. That's what punk rock was about. You know what I mean? It wasn't about, yeah, like you know, your, your political in general. Yeah. It, That's why I was, yeah, it was just when he was just yeah, all about it was just, the democratic party and the political process. Yeah. Like, Dude, That's not punk rock. Not, not, not what I grew up with anyway. Right. But, 
but yeah, yeah he's, he's definitely California's always been on the on the left side of the, on the left side of things out there, or even going all the way back, Black Flag and all the the, the earliest punk bands. Um, but uh, yeah, so I <laughs> I had the same conversation with Mike. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it got heated, man. I thought we were gonna throw down for a minute there, but and then he, to his credit, he was like, "Look, you know, I apologize." You're right. And right. I just said my my whole thing was, look, if we can't sit down and have a conversation and we if yeah. our opinions differ and have a civil conversation and debate, I was like, that's the problem in this fucking country right now is no one yeah. everyone's screaming at each other. Like yeah. let's just yeah. you know, like talk and share a different perspective and maybe, you know, you you change your opinion, I change mine and we see things from different point of view and it, it was actually i forget that that commercial i think it was a heineken commercial where they they basically they show these videos of like there's a guy on there saying how anti-gay he is and he's just going on a rant and then there's someone you know on the political spectrum and it's all all these people with these opposite ideas and then what they did was they paired them up for this heineken challenge and they had to tackle this problem together. And then when they finished, they were like high-fiving each other. And then they sat down when they were done and they showed him the video. And it was like, so there's like a, um, a black girl and this guy, and maybe the guy was talking about affirmative action or something like that, but right. they showed the videos and then they got really uncomfortable. And then it just yeah. said, look, you have a decision you can, crack open a beer and, and put aside your differences and get to know each other, or you can leave the room. And, yeah. and it was just like really cool, uh, project that they did, you know, and, and of course, you know, they, they were like, fuck it, let's have a beer and, and shoot of the course. shit, which I, that to me is what it's all about and what this country should yep. be about. But anyway, absolutely. The free, That's the free Heineken you know, plug. Fuck Heineken. <laughs> We're not advertising yeah. on our show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a big joke about about being in the military too, right? You're, yeah. you're working with people that chances are before in your everyday life, if you're hanging out with your buddies, you might not have wanted to have anything to do with. But you get into the military and you ain't got a choice. There ain't no way around it. Yeah. Whether you like that guy next to you or not, you're going to get the job done with him. So. That's exactly, and and yeah. and that you're absolutely right. That's what the country was built on. You know what I mean? And in fact, it's one of our strengths too. It's how how we keep things balanced and make sure that everybody's got got uh, the the room to do what they want to do, as long as they're not dancing on somebody else's shoes. It should all be good, but yeah, it's it just seems really weird right now how how polarized and how everyone's just like in lockstep with what their party does or, you know, what their, what their group says should be right. And it's everybody trying to tell everybody else how they should be living their lives and what you should respect and what you shouldn't respect. So yeah, it's, me, like it's, this, every, it's like peril. Everyone's paralyzed and afraid to, to even say anything. And, and I, yeah. I did an interview the other day and it was said, look, I'm not afraid to be a man. Like there's this whole feminism movement, which look, I am all about equal women being equal. But the problem is that feminism movement has been hijacked by a bunch of feminazis and it's a female world. Females are the future. You know, I'm like, look, 
yeah, maybe in the movie Wonder Woman that exists, but you know, we all have to get along, like try and existing on your own without right. mating with, with males. <laughs> but the whole thing right. is like, it's okay to be a man, you know, it's okay to drink right. beer, smoke a cigar, open a door for right. a lady. Like it's just, and there's this whole like pussification and, and demasculinization of, of men. That's why I see it probably more so in New York, but yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna, yeah, I'll tell you, I, I just came back from Europe and I was shocked at, shocked at, you know, they've, they've had like a real far reaching revolution over there. Um, social revolution over there on, on, um, on people's roles in society and what's acceptable and what's not. And, and it's, um, it was, it was shocking to me how, how much it's changed over there. Um, people's attitudes in general. And, you know, the, I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. I'm not trying to judge it at all, but the, um, you know, exactly what you're saying. Like I, I, it's almost, they've almost flipped roles. It's almost like they're attempting to turn everything on its head to bring about change. And, you know, for, for me, um, as you know, my time on the planet anyway, what I've learned is that things that change slowly usually change for good. Things yeah. that you try to change quickly, like it's like with any revolution that happens through violence, you're going to have a yeah. counter revolution at some point because now you, you set the bar for what it takes to change things. Yeah. And uh, and you know, it, you know, in my opinion, if if that's what we continue to do, if we don't learn from the past, that's one great thing about being a, a student of history. If you've studied warfare and all that stuff, is you you kind of see and 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 understand the things that work and the things that don't work. And the things that work are the changes that come around gradually, where people's uh, um where people's minds get changed over a long period of time rather than trying to force it down their throat because there's no yep. pushback. Yep. You know what I mean? It's a change in consciousness, not a, not in a change, not a change in the way they live from day to day. It's a change in consciousness. And that's the kind of change that lasts there's when they just like with the China, with the communist revolutions and all that, they can, they hold, they held on to things for a while, but in, in the end, you know, the biggest ones anyway, except for China and, North Korea, pretty much, they they all fail because yep. it's 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 human nature to want to do better for yourself, to want to work harder, to 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 have more things and take better care of your family and stuff. And that's a hard thing to fight, you know. It's yeah. a hard thing to fight human nature. Yeah, I mean, and that's what slowly happened in Ukraine with that revolution of dignity. It just yep, you know, it just they got a taste of it, and there was a whole promise of joining the potentially yep. joining the EU. And then, then they tried to crack down and, and the, those young kids just rose up. Yeah. And, and Czechoslovakia uh, too. They had a, they had a peaceful yeah. revolution, you know, yeah. they just, they just kind of like, Hey, look, this is what we want. You know, we're just going to do it. And that's, and they got it. They made it happen. Yeah. So, uh, CJ real, really interested, you know, as I'm starting this, new podcast, the power of thought and just dealing with a lot of people's fear, um, and overcoming adversity and just wondering like how, like your personal experience 
performing in front of a live audience and and you know is there any issues that you had to overcome being a live performer and in front of a crowd that you could share share with people and so they can maybe help them deal with their own uh, fear of public speaking or, yep. or talking in front of a crowd sure yeah no problem um let me just tell the story yeah yeah i would love it okay so the uh you know the 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 leap from from going from play, you know playing in club bands and whatnot and uh and then moving into playing with the Ramones where we played, you know, in front of crowds, 45,000, even some, some even bigger than that. I mean, we really played a, a wide range of audiences anywhere from 500 to, you know, like I said, 45,000 and higher. Um, uh, it was, uh, it was kind of a trial by fire for me because I had no experience in playing in front of a crowd more than, more than a couple of hundred and definitely uh, the expectation from the crowd was nowhere as near as what it was for the Ramones. And because I was such a huge Ramones fan, I, I, I just, it was not going to happen that I was going to get up on stage and not be 100% completely prepared. So, um, uh, you have to keep in mind too, when I got to the band, I got, I only had five weeks in between when I got out of the Marine Corps and when I did my first, uh, show with the band. So I had wow. five weeks to learn 40 songs <laughs> and, and, and f five weeks to the day I did my first show. So, um, I have, I just developed a, um, a method really for, um, for practicing and preparing that really helped kind of put a lot of the, push a lot of the fear to the side. And yep. that was just a really strong, um, practice schedule, a really intense practice schedule. I literally lived in my, in my room for five weeks straight and did nothing but play bass. And when I wasn't playing my bass, I had it in my hands. I ate dinner sitting, sitting down yeah. with my bass. I even slept. I, I had read somewhere that Jimi Hendrix slept with his guitar because he felt like it helped him connect with his guitar. I slept with my bass in my bed. I still lay on my back and just like you're doing boot camp, <laughs> sleep yep, with your yeah. rifle with board on. That's how I slept <laughs> with my bass. Wow. And I, I'm not joking that just that kind of preparation really um, set me up for uh for a good first experience. Now, the night of the show, of course, the first show, I'm standing in the wings and I'm trying to go over in my head everything that I've done. The trick with Ramon songs is, is that a lot of them are so similar. At practices, I would play, I would be playing like the, the verse from one song and break into the chorus of another one because some of them are structured uh, so closely uh that it's your mind just kind of, they all kind of bleed into one song at some point. Yeah. But, um, uh, I had, I really had to like go over in my head before we went on stage and, and try to like separate each songs. And if you've ever seen a Ramon concert or, or watched one, the songs go one to one, one right into another. Every time a song stops, I would have to count off one, two, three, four, and we would start into the next one. So, yeah even separating the songs was, was difficult once the set started rolling. 
But that, but rehearse, practicing the way I did and the rehearsal schedule we kept with the Ramones um, technically prepared me for it. Mentally, it's really a whole other thing. Mentally, there was no way for me to prepare for being a Ramon and stepping on stage and taking the place of one of the most legendary bass players and songwriters in, in punk rock and rock and roll history. There was no way I could prepare for that. I was a Dee Dee fan. When I heard Dee Dee left the band, I, I said to my buddy, we were riding in a car together. I turned to him and I said, I'll never go to another Ramon show because it ain't the Ramones or that Dee Dee. <laughs> yeah. And those words just rang in my head like it's, it's standing there. But um, the, uh, the, the, the best way for, for me to describe the, the mental state that I was in before we went on stage was just, I just had to let everything go. I had a, I just had to let it go. I, I knew I couldn't go out on stage with all these worries and all these fears in my head. And there were, I had a lot of them. I really did. It was, it was a scary, scary situation. You know, the, we had the good, the bad and the ugly that uh, theme played before on stage. And I had been to so many Ramon shows. As soon as I heard that start, I got butterflies, like forget it. And, um, but I, I stood there and, and Johnny looked at me and he said, and he looked me right in my eyes and he said to me, are you ready to go? And I just smiled and I said, I'm ready. And I just, I just had to let it go. I just had to let it go. And there, cause at that point there was nothing I could do. I had, yeah. I had practiced as much as I could. I had, you know, rehearsed with the band as much as I could. I lived, ate, slept everything with my bass that whole time. And I, I felt like, if, if I'm not ready right now, I'm never going to be ready. And that's pretty much how I stepped out on stage. And let me tell you, it was not a, a graceful 100%, you know, perfectly played set. I got hit with boots, bottles, <laughs> handfuls of coins. I, yeah. I was so covered with spit at the end of the set. When we walked over the encore, I pulled my shirt off because I just smelled like mucus so bad. So not, not only did I have to, you know, just kind of let everything go and, and, and fall back on, on my, my training. But I had to, you know, I had to fight all of that stuff at the same time. And I had people right up front holding up a sign that said, we want Dee and cursing at me and everything else. And is it okay to drop the F bomb? Oh yeah. You can, cur- I can curse on you. Oh yeah. Boy. <laughs> I had this girl sitting on her boyfriend's shoulders right in front of me giving me the thing of the whole time, holding up a sign that said, we want Dee I walked out to the end of the stage. I was like, fuck you. I fucked the queen in the <laughs> ass and just giving it right back to them. And at one point I got so pissed off. I walked back to my amp. I grabbed the water bottle off the top of my amp and hit this girl right in the chest and knocked her off her boyfriend's shoulders. <laughs> he turned around and looked at the stage and put both his fists in the air and was like, yeah. And at that point I realized like I, I, I was winning the crowd over because I, nice. I didn't stay at the back and hunker down all scared. I went right out to the end of the stage, took everything okay. they threw at me and, and still played decent and, and got through the set and, and that's how it went. That was the first one. And it was kind that's of a awesome. repeat of that every night for the first year, every time we went to a new territory, it getting pummeled with stuff and spit on, but it's like anything else. Once you go through it once and you know what to expect, there's no more fear in it. So. Yeah. And that, that's something that hit me just listening to your story. And, and I've seen it when I was a sniper instructor, 
we would do these five hour stalking exercises and, you know, and we'd have two instructors observing that the students were sneaking up on trying to get within 200 meters and set up for a shot. And we'd have walkers in the field. And when I remember being a walker and you have this fluorescent orange hat and a radio and the, and the observers, instructors, if they see something, they use you as a walker in the field to, to, you know, bust a, a student who's not camouflaged properly or, or using right. his concealment. And I would see these guys, they would get up to the, to the 200 meter zone. They'd be there first and they would spend hours and hours just prepping and prepping and they could not let go and take that shot. They could commit to taking the shot. And it's yeah. where I think a lot of people get stuck in life is you know, they're preparing, preparing, oh, now's not the time. This this doesn't feel right or it's not good enough. I need to prepare more. And eventually you gotta just fucking let go. And yep. once once you let go, you feel what it's like and then you kind of get better and adjust and but you have to let go or else you're just never gonna move forward. Yeah, it's 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 like having buck fever. You know, it's, yeah. and, the, and the worst thing that the worst thing about it is, is opportunity, real serious opportunity comes up so rarely in life. It, opportunity is a, really a rare thing. Uh, yeah. If you're the average person, if you're somebody that understands that and you're making your own opportunities, you're getting out there and, and making your own opportunities. That's a different thing. But for the average person or a younger person who's just kind of coming into the, you know, coming into the world, kind of just finding themselves, they usually blow a lot of opportunity because they feel that they're not ready. They feel that they're not prepared enough, you know, even if they are, or they're just not willing to take a chance. And that's something that I, that I, I, I try to tell everybody. I know friends that have wanted to get businesses started or friends that yep. have just wanted to make a big move in their life. Life. I always tell them, I'm like, you've already made up your mind. You want to do it. Stop thinking that you're prepping. You've already yep. made up your mind. That's it. If, if your mind is made up, you have to just go for it because the longer you put it off and the longer you say, well, after this happens, well, after that happens, what you're doing is you're creating a cycle, a repetitive cycle that you're not going to break out of because every time you feel uncomfortable, you're going to fall back into that cycle. And that's a really dangerous thing because it, 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 that's the kind of thing that can keep you from doing anything. And, and not will it, not only will it take, keep you from doing big things, but if you let that cycle continue, it'll even keep you from making smaller decisions. And then you, then you're in that kind of weird spot where you're paralyzed. You're con it's like my wife calls it paralysis by paralysis by analysis. Yep, exactly. You know, you just you're constantly looking at the problem and 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 trying to uh, and trying to figure out every little problem that might come up. You deal with the problems on the fly sometimes. That's how it goes. But you've got to take those first steps to make it happen. And it, it, most people just don't even understand how capable they are of thinking on their feet and solving problems as they go along. It's almost yep. like you, once you make a commitment and you get into something, there's like a, um, it's like a river. There's a flow to it. You're caught in that flow. And as things come up on you, you learn to either navigate, navigate around them or you learn to go through them. But for the most part, most people will do one or the other. 
the thing that messages messes you up is when you come up on a problem and you get paralyzed by it and all you can focus on it focus on is the problem and not how to navigate around it or go through it that's what yeah. you have a problem and, but most people don't. like most people once they're thrown in that situation they know okay this is coming up this is what what do we have to do and the, and the, the best thing is once you get to the level where you have a team and then you can surround yourself with good people that when something comes up, you say, Hey, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And then it makes your own job a lot easier. And the danger, like you said, is make is when it becomes a habit and you have yeah. a habit of not following through. And that's something I talk about with my own kids. And I, I say, look, you have to make setting goals and achieving them. Like even the small ones, you know, we had that book that, the Admiral, uh, the SEAL Admiral McRaven, who was my first commanding officer at SEAL Team 3, wrote a book about, and the whole thing was like, make your bed, because that small act of setting yep. a goal for yourself and completing it every day is something you develop a habit of, and then it turns into bigger goals, bigger accomplishments, but you're developing that pattern of of being able yep. to set goals and, and achieve them and, and not just give up halfway through. And you and I have both had friends that, something and just never finish it and then they start something else yeah. and they never finish it and yeah. you're you hit the nail on the head brother with the opportunity because opportunities come around so there's just so scarce and you have to seize yeah. on those opportunities yeah and the absolutely. time we just don't have that our time is so limited and precious on this planet that you have to use it and you got to start right fucking now today. Right. Cause well, now, yeah. now you're talking about, now you're talking about the big picture though, is, is appreciation <laughs> of, of time. Yeah. That's the yeah. big picture, appreciating yeah. time and, and knowing and, and really knowing what your time is worth. There's, you know, a, a running out of time is my worst fear. That's, yes. that's my biggest fear is running out of time. I don't want to run out of time before I get to do everything that I've wanted to do in my life. And that's yep. why I move at the pace I do. That's why I, I take the, you know, I, I do the tour schedule that I, that I do. That's why I'm out there constantly hitting the road hard. There's things I still want to accomplish within, within music that I'm still working towards. And I work towards them every single day. I make sure I do something small every single day. My wife and I had a had a major discussion yesterday on um, on uh, I recently took uh, took a, a couple of tours in the support slot for other bands, and you know one of the things I'm trying to do is increase the crowd size in the states, and the only way I can do that is if I get in front of bigger crowds and 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 pick up a couple of fans, but it can't necessarily be bands that are, um, that are punk rock bands because we're pulling pretty much from the same, the same group of people. So uh, we went out on tour with this one band and, and, and I know we picked up a, a, a good amount of new fans because we sold a lot of merchandise on the nights that we played with them. That's, that's how we gauge um, how much people really have liked the show is by the amount of merchandise that we, that we sell. So yeah. we, we played with a band. Most of the, the crowd was their crowd, but we still sold what we usually do. So we can say, Hey, we definitely picked up some, some new fans. So we got another offer from them. It's going to really fill in my schedule. I'm going to be gone for most of the rest of this year. 
which of course my wife is none too happy about, but um, <laughs> she was questioning on why, why I would take a, a tour, a warm up slot with another band when it doesn't pay anywhere near as much as it does when I play on my own. And I told her I I'm playing the long game. Yep. I'm 51 years old. I'm still playing the long game in music. You know what I mean? That yeah, well, I have a very long view of my life and my career because there are definite things I want to accomplish. And, and I, I know how I'm, I know how to get to them. I know, you know, what it's going to take to get there. And I do whatever it takes to get there. And that's what, that's always been my, my philosophy is you can pretty much have whatever you want as long as you're willing to do what it takes to get there. Yeah, I agree. And I talk about the long game in music. I just watched that Chicago documentary and I mean, what those guys have yeah. been 60 years now, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yep. They're in yep. it for the long game. Um, yep. But hey, brother, I appreciate you taking the time today and just a fascinating perspective. And I, I know I know the audience is going to love it. And, and, uh, cool. Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it, man. Thanks, Thanks DJ. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.